Welcome everyone to episode 30 of What's That Sound podcast. My name's Stu Watts and today I talked with Mitch Kenny, who's a recording and mix engineer from originally from Melbourne, but has since made the move to the States, LA to be exact. He's worked with some of the biggest names in music, Beyonce, Elton John, Chris Brown, and back here in Australia, Daniel Johns, Hermitude, June Rats, just to name a few. In this episode, we talked about how he made the move to the States and what that all looked like, his mixing philosophy and why he always starts with the kick drum, and also the importance of phase and compression when you are mixing. If you could do us a favor and make sure you hit follow or subscribe on your podcast platform that you're watching or listening to this on. That way you can stay up to date with each new episode. And if you could also do us a favor and share this episode on your socials, whether that's in a story or a post or in a DM or even in a conversation with someone that you think might get something out of this. We just want to spread the word to as many people as possible and you can help us by doing that. With all that said and done, let's get into it. This is such an amazing episode. I was so stoked to talk with Mitch Kenny, so let's get into it. Episode 30 of What's That Sound podcast. You're listening to What's That Sound with your host, Stu Watts. Welcome everyone to another episode of What's That Sound. My name's Stu Watts and today I'm here with Mitch Kenny. Mitch, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to be here. Uh, it's awesome to have you, man. I'm finally uh, finally glad to actually sit down and have a chat with you. Um, you know, the owner of this studio is here, Bennett, has been talking to talking about you for a long time. So it's yeah. it's awesome to, to have you on, man. Yeah, it's funny, like um, Ben and I know each other, both our parents were teachers and um, his mum used to buy me gingerbread men when I was a, <laughs> when, when I was a little kid. So we've, we've known each other for a lifetime outside the business, but when uh, when Marshall Street was getting going, was happy to have some, like, you know, from input from afar and uh, yeah. love to see what's going, love, love to see everything that's happening there. Uh, it's so good, man. It's it's awesome. So um, before we um, kind of get into, you know, what you're doing these days, let's kind of start with a bit of an about you and kind of where music came into play for you as well. Well, you know, talking about um, both my parents were um, exceptionally musical. My mum, my mum trained as a, as a singer and, and a pianist. And my dad was uh, or is, I shouldn't say was, talk about my old man in the past tense, but um, <laughs> they did pro music theatre as well as teaching and that's my way in if we go all the way back, um, mm-hmm. play, playing in shows, being around it and and all that sort of stuff. Um, I studied as a cello player. I, I went to VCA and mm-hmm. didn't quite get through as a classical cello player for two reasons. First of all, I didn't have the chops and secondly, I didn't spend that time that you need to to be a professional player but always had a real interest in audio and making records and this, that and the other. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I was in a band um, that no one knows of and rem- or remembers, but that was my first introduction to studios. Yeah. And and from there um, did a whole bunch of live sound um, for a fantastic, fantastic person, Jeremy Cairns, and his wife Margaret ran Versatile Productions out of Warnable of all places. Oh, wow. Doing large-scale, large-scale live sound. Yep. Uh, got, a gig, got a gig at Studio 52. Um, is my first way into the business and then did some advertising and a few other bits and pieces, started my own room and then came to LA. Um, yeah, wow. And from there, things kind of blossomed from there. Mm-hmm. And so if we kind of go back again just to, to the early days, what sort of music were you interested in? What were you listening to? What was like making you excited? I don't even see the Hooter Gurus poster behind me. but uh, um, yeah? But yeah, yeah. Um, Look, the pub it's rock. like, yeah, it, it's it's funny, you know, like with the the music that I was into as a consume, like as a as a punter, mm. um, in in those days was anything that was like I love rock music, um, but like bands like Custard and Tism and yeah. Ween is a, Ween is a big one for me, like all these all these bands um, that that yeah you know, I, I loved. Um, mm. Not not so much on the the alternative space, but like we're talking like Melbourne in the Melbourne in the like mid nineties was a like a fantastic place to be a music fan, um, and that's what I was really drawn to with the 
the Studio 52 thing gave me a real insight into like some blues and roots as well. So I had a little bit mm. of success there with bands like Morris Frawley and the Working Class Ringos and um, Chris Wilson um, and making records that I I look back on now and I had no business being in those rooms because I wasn't <laughs> skilled enough. But those people were very kind to me and got to make some got to make some good records. And it's funny where I've ended up professionally is making a lot of hip hop and a lot of pop, a lot of pop. Mm. Um, and that necessarily wasn't what I was into as a, as a punter, mm -hmm. but, um, but yeah, it's, it's all tied together, I suppose. Mm, yeah, for sure. And so those sorts of early sessions, you know, what, what do they sort of look like? Obviously things have changed dramatically since those days. Um, can you give us a little bit of insight into kind of what it was like learning, you know, in the early stages? For sure. So it's, it's really one of the big differences between the record, the record business in Australia and the record business here. So mm. I, after I'd done some study and yeah, got, got the gig at studio 52, um, I'm in the chair, I'm by myself there's no assistant and away you go, you know, off you go some. Mm. And there's positives and negatives to that. So on on the on the the positive side is that you you're the one, you're making the record, it's you. Mm. The negative is that you don't necessarily have people who are more skilled than you to learn from. Mm -hmm. And one of the big things about when I came to the States was that, that there's a hierarchy. There's a, there's a producer, there's an engineer, there's a, there's an assistant and you get to sit behind people who are very, very good at what they're doing. Sometimes also you get to sit behind people who've got absolutely no idea what they're doing mm. and you're more skilled than them and you just need to ride that out. But that's, yeah, that, that's another story. Mm. But so when I started at studio 52, we're talking, um, uh, ADAT XT, so digital based audio, twenty four tracks of uh, twenty four tracks of ADAT, mm -hmm. which had its anyone who's old enough to remember the the ordeal with it. Look, it's it's a good <laughs> format, and it was cheap, but consistent sync issues. Um, right. Yes. He, heads would clog. It was a real. It was a real. Um, you had to be really aware of what was going on, console wise. Alan and Heath. I uh, can't remember what it was, but mm -hmm. small fader, large fader, inline console situation. Mm -hmm. So basically the same if you're dealing with SSL. And it worked great. And after I was there for a little while, I, I moved downstairs to the big room and it's still uh, 24 channels of two inch. Mm -hmm. um, the console escapes me at the moment because it's 20 something yeah. years ago. <laughs> yeah, but, um, good. But, um, but yeah, so primarily coming from tape based so that's that's what it looked at and look it's it's something that even though it was looking back on it it's problematic technology wise like some mm. of it sounded good but some of it didn't but mm. the biggest thing about it is that i have a proper grounding in mm. signal flow and the interesting yep. thing about that is that all of the software still implies it or expects an implied knowledge of the signal flow to mm. get things, you know, right, whatever mm. right is. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I'm really glad I did it. And I'm also really glad that I did the live sound thing as well because, like, the, mm. the joy of live sound is that you if you make a mistake, it happens and it's gone. But yes. the negative is you make something wonderful and it happens and it's gone. And that's different yeah. from record making where what you make can, you know, can, can be there forever for better or worse. But I really appreciate my my start in Life Sound, not only because mm. the people who gave me a start are excellent people and and you know that's forever appreciated, but the whole understanding of signal flow really comes yeah. from that. And I think it's part of the craft that's being lost a little bit. But yeah. I think I think it's a really important a really important part of what we do. Mm, yeah, for sure. I mean, like troubleshooting wise and, you know, just understanding kind of where issues can, uh, can appear and knowing like how to, how to figure that out. If, if you don't understand signal flow, it's a real kind of like guessing game and you really could just like waste a whole lot of time without. Yeah, indeed. Kind of, and like, yeah. and look, this, this can be a very, very easy job when everything's working mm. It only, it's only when things aren't working on a technical level. Um, and this isn't mm. thinking, um, about anything artistic, but on a pure technical level about, you know, signal in, signal out, it's very, very easy 
to um, to sit in front of a keyboard and hit mm. you know, hit record. But when things go wrong is when the engineering comes in mm. and also when it's time to be creative or it's time to do something which is a little bit, yeah, a little bit weird or whatever mm. is when the engineering comes in. So I, I did a June Rats record at the Grove um, at the end of 2018 mm-hmm. and, like, I, we had, um, like, signal going everywhere like a like mm. bass i remember recording a bass guitar so we had it it split one way for the clean and then we had it split the same thing for my like just pure di just so i had it yeah, and then yeah. we had a split going to an amp room and then we had a split another way for the pedal so all of a sudden we're moving one signal four or five different ways yeah, and wow. getting the engineering right getting the impedance right making sure that that's all correct is where the nitty gritty of it ha- of it happens. And talking about assistants, like um, had a fantastic assistant up there, Jack Negro, who made just made everything work. So yep. whenever we had to drop into a real, you know, engineering type moment, there was help. But mm. um, yeah, let's. It's very easy to get noise and have trouble or get the plumbing wrong or have an air gap when we're trying to send things in four different directions for no other reason that I wanted those options later on when I was mixing the record, but. Yeah, it's like it's a very, very easy job when things are working and everything's easy, but the signal flow and um, the experience of dealing with that stuff comes in really handy when, you know, when everything turns to shit. Yeah, absolutely. And these are things that, you know, take a long time to fully understand and get the actual kind of application side of it. You can only like fully understand it once you've done it a bunch of times. So on that, do you have kind of like memories of, of things that you thought you probably needed to focus on a whole lot more? And, you know, with, with all of your years of experience now, you kind of go, I, I just didn't, I just didn't need to worry about that as much as I thought that I did. Um, I think the big, the biggest thing that, that now would be like, um, I invested a lot of time understanding console automation mm-hmm. um, and and time code, and it's I think it, it's because I'm a little bit of a dinosaur at the moment. Like that stuff was really sync was important. Sync mm. was supremely important when we're running automation off tape. Mm. Um, did I spend too much time on it? I don't think so because mm. at the time it was really important. Mm, but yeah. now now like. Um, I couldn't tell you the last time I turned on a tape machine, <laughs> yeah. um, and I'm glad. I'm glad for that as well. Look, I think people romanticise tape and romanticise consoles. Yeah, it's for the sort of records that I make. It is not the right format, and sure. Pro, Pro Tools is a better format um, because if I'm say I'm making an R and B record and I need to do stacks on stacks on stacks yeah um i need to go back exactly two bars each time and the artist needs to expect there's going to be that exact same amount of pre-roll so if i'm doing leads and doubles and triples and then quad stacks of the first harmony note and then quad stacks of the second harmony note Mm. and the fourth or whatever all of a sudden we can get to very very quickly get to 40 50 channels of a you know of a little part so being able to drop be able to play back two bars before that each and every time makes it easier for the artist so the the limitations of tape would be first of all the noise is just too much um for the records that i make but i think that um just how quickly that could all happen cutting a vocal Mm -hmm. would be almost impossible on tape and it's just yeah totally i I think it's romanticized a little bit if i'm being if i'm being brutally honest but look there's there's people who who make records that um, that don't sound like the records that I make. Like mm. the example would be um, like a Kevin Parker record isn't mm. a record that isn't going to sound like a record that I make because I like things to sound shiny and yes. and not lo-fi and whatever. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. That might work on tape and that might work through a whole lot of um, grit, but it's not the records that I make and it's not mm. the records that I gravitate towards you know, on the yeah. radio. Yeah, and and we'll definitely get into, you know, the sounds of your records and the mixing um, side of things later on. I, I still want to touch on the actual production and engineering side of things to to kind of open up, you know, how not only how you learnt all that sort of stuff, but also like what your process is these days, you know, when it comes to production and recording, like 
has it changed dramatically over the years or kind of, you know, did it, is it similar to, to how it started? Um, I don't think it's similar to how it started. Mm. I think that there was like maybe the first 10 years it was rapid growth until I started to work some stuff out. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, I think it really depends on the record. Like, um, so my approach to doing a rock record and the approaches are very different if I'm mixing it or recording it. Now I'm doing as little recording at the moment as I possibly can. The only mm-hmm. things I'm recording, are, so um, my dear friend and business partner, Justin Merrill, um, we have a production company called Happy Year. So basically everything that I'm recording at the moment is for us. I'm mm-hmm. not rec- I'm not making rec- you know, making records mm-hmm. for other people, but I'm still mixing for mm-hmm. for all unsundry. So the I think it really depends on the record. So if we're doing a pop record, primarily here it's vocals over beats, mm-hmm. whether they be things that I or we have produced or if they come from somebody else. So that's one whole process. If we're doing a band record, which really isn't on the recording side, really isn't part of my wheelhouse mm-hmm. anymore uh, here, that's a that's a whole different perspective. If we're mm-hmm. doing orchestral music, there's that's got its own, that's got its own thing. So mm. That that's a non-answer, and I like I understand, <laughs> I, I, I understand that's a non-answer, but it's it really is dependent on what on what we're doing on the mixing side. I think I'm a little more consistent, but very different to what I was ten years ago. Or maybe yeah. ten, well, I'm trying to work it out. So ten years ten years is ten years ago is a is an interesting benchmark for me because that's when I went to Sydney mm-hmm. for a little bit, um, and primarily focused or changed my focus from recording to mixing. Sure. So it was really, really lucky when I got there um, through one thing or another, fell into um, mm. mixing some great records. And one of the things that I think differentiated me from other people who were mixing records there was I'm probably more aggressive in my approach mm-hmm. um, because I, my mixing chops, especially on a, you know, on a you know, top end type thing come from A-list pop and hip hop. So, yeah. I, I, so I approach things with a very aggressive mindset. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. that, I think that comes through in, in my work. And I think that's why people call me like, it's an old adage, but mix engineers are like flavors of ice cream. So, mm. you know, if you want, I'm, I'm going to mix something the if, if you get me to mix something, it's going to sound like me. So, mm. you know, I might be chocolate, you know, Eric J might be, you know, strawberry. You know, no one wants to be vanilla, but like you, you get, <laughs> you're gonna get, yeah, uh, you're gonna get a flavor, and that works and it doesn't work. So, if if you want a record that sounds like I mixed it, mm. like I'm the best bet. Again, not mm. trying to rag on uh, on um, old mate Kevin Parker, but if you want a lo-fi grainy record, I'm probably mm. not your guy. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm I'm gonna want things to pop. I'm gonna want things to be bright and aggressive, and that's kind of yeah. That's that's what I'm drawn to. So that's what I do. Yeah, absolutely. And there's there's so many questions that I have, but <laughs> it's like it's like how do I get through all of them? But um, let, let, let's have them all. Well, I guess you know. Let's talk about some of the 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 stuff that you've worked on. You've worked on some amazing amazing things internationally and in Australia. You know, you've you've got. Chris Brown, you've got Snoop Dogg and Wiz Khalifa, you know, these huge artists that are internationally known, like the world over Beyonce, you know, and then in Australia, you've got people like uh, Daniel Johns and, and, and Hermitude and just, again, just huge names. Not only, yeah, again, there's so many questions, but when it, when the approaches for different artists, uh, obviously night and day, if you're comparing Daniel Johns with Chris Brown. So kind of how, how do you how do you know which angle to go for? See, I'd argue that they're not that that there's okay, actually great. not that much I'd argue that there's not that much difference. So great. the the thing about Daniel, so um straight off the bat, it's my favorite record I've ever made by by Beautiful. you know by a, a long way. And the main reason is that Dan and I have a similar taste in records. Mm-hmm. So 
like when I started to make the record, because um, it's a it's a it's a high pressure gig that one. Um, mm-hmm. it, he'd he'd he's he'd released a solo record before, um, but this is the first one that he'd made through his label through mm. BMG. Yeah. Um, and there's there's also other um, there's some personal stuff as well. So um, I'm. Have got a great relationship with Heath, his brother, who mm-hmm. runs who runs BMG. Mm-hmm. I was also managed by the most fantastic person in the whole world, Bernadette Fadul, who was working at John Watson when sure. Daniel was there. So there's all these relationships going on. So, mm-hmm. da- so I've done a couple of things for Dan. I did the 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 um, the Qantas Atlas campaign with the Australian Chamber Orchestra. I'd mixed a couple of Boom Tish records or one Boom Tish record. So, yep. um, like, we've been in each other's universes a little bit, mm. but when the record came up, it's a yeah, it's, it's a high pressure record. Mm. So I mixed the first, I mixed the first one, did my thing, and and he came back and was basically, I love it, and I'm like, cool, like you know, <laughs> like what 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 do we need to change? And it's like tiny little changes here or there, and I think a lot of it is because we're. I'm a little bit older than Dan, but not a whole lot. Mm. And we've grown up on the same records. We've mm-hmm. grown up mm-hmm. on um, like a relatively shared experience, maybe more so than other people here in LA that that um, might have been in the frame to mix the record. Mm-hmm. And the thing that, going back to your question about like him and Chris, the thing that 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 Dan liked was he wanted something to be aggressively shiny. Mm. Um, and that's what I like to do in terms of mixing a record. So that's why it was easy. Mm. And the same thing with making a Chris record, like it, it had to be aggressive, but we're talking, we're talking shiny, shiny pop record. Yes. So there's not, excuse me, there's not that much, there's not that much difference. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. I suppose in terms of the, like the, the, the content and, and the production, it's a little bit different, but at the end of the day, we're trying to make something that works well on radio. Mm-hmm. And I think radio is radio is still like really undervalued. Or not still undervalued. At the moment, radio is undervalued <laughs> because I, I understand that there's all of these different formats mm. and there's streaming and there's the there's like the whole SoundCloud thing, which I've been involved in as well. Mm-hmm. Um but at the end of the day, radio is super important mm. and like when we did the, the, um, the, there's a song on the on Dan's record. I feel electric, and mm. I did um, something in particular with the drums mm. and went uber pop with them. Like I went really really <laughs> pop. Um, the producer pushed back and said this isn't right. And I very rarely do this, but I pushed back again. Yeah. I pushed back hard and went no, I think I'm right. <laughs> Um, because we're making we're making a pop record. Yes. Um, we're not making a. Uh, it feels like I'm shitting on Tame Impala, but we're not making a Tame Impala record. <laughs> we're making we're making a pop record. Sure. Um, and with that, that's been something that really res like it's got it went really well at radio. Mm. It was well received. It's right up there with the the biggest streamers and this that and the mm. other. Got the um the nomination for an APRA like APRA song of the year type stuff. So yes. feel feel vindicated on that and not I didn't write it, but I feel that some of the choices that I made maybe helped to get to radio. Sure. And getting to radio in my world is still is still, you know, incredibly important. Well, and it should be, and it should be for anyone that's like wanting to have big big aspirations for getting their music as far as possible. It should there's no reason why it shouldn't be, you know, the ultimate place to get to. And, you know, um, it's huge. And, and, and it's a phenomenal album. The sounds of it are crazy. There, There's all different sounds. One of my favourite tracks, I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's got that really aggressive distorted guitar in the chorus. Phenomenal sound. And just like, I mean, again, there's just like a such a varied uh, sound across the board on that whole album from track to track and even in the individual track, the, the sounds are just so varied. So let's talk more about the actual approach to mixing. You know, you talk about your um, mixes being super shiny and crystal clear and I definitely noticed that and, you know, you get some hard-hitting bass as well. 
how do how do how do you achieve those sorts of sounds? And that's not a very simple question to answer. But is there like I know that I'm doing X Y Z in in each mix to kind of get it to a place? Yeah, um, there really you know is. expand there, on that. Yeah, no, there there, there definitely is. Um, so I start. I think that the most, there's the four most important things in a record are the kick drum, the kick drum, the kick drum, and the kick drum. So <laughs> beautiful. It's the it is the, the basis of everything for, for lots of reasons. First of all, and again, I'm going to refer to my old friend Tal Hasberg, who, um, you know, no longer with us, but always with us because he keeps coming up in conversation. Mm-hmm. Tal was a, um, like, um, an angry Israeli, Tal Avivian Israeli. Like, and I love Tal. I love Tal with every fibre of my being. And we got to work together a whole lot. Mm-hmm. Tal would say the only people don't care about tuning the mix the you know anything all people Mm -hmm. care about is blood sweat and tears (laughs) and something to tap their foot to and he's right so Mm -hmm. for me it's the kick drum so not only on a on an emotional level but on a mix level i hang my hat the whole mix hangs on getting the kick right because it's in the center of the image and if i can get that right i can get the rest right um quite simply so with um, so I start with the kicks. I always start with the kicks. Um, with no matter what sort of music it is, I start. Mm-hmm. I start with the kick drum. My the way that my you know I hate saying mixed template, but the way that my, my that you know I start off is with um, I have a I have a GML. I, I have an, a, a Smart C C one, so the SSL Master Bus compressor, yep. and I have um, a GML eighty two hundred. So that mm-hmm. gets inserted over the Master Bus. Mm-hmm. Um, because I'm a hundred percent in the box. Like mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I've committed, I've committed to mixing in the box for years now for a number of reasons. First of all, because of the way that the revisions work, I just need to, I need to be able to, I yes. need to have instant recall. But secondly, so like I'm in my little room at home at the moment, mm-hmm. but I've got exactly the same gear at the studio. So sure. I have, so I can move, all I need to do is I have a PDF where I did the markings on my, on the, uh, where my um, EQ is and where my master bus compressor is. Mm-hmm. And then I can recall instantly pretty much mm. anywhere in the world. And the other thing about like in LA, I can depend on no matter what other, what other gear is there, I can depend on there being a, either the SSL master bus compressor on the console or mm-hmm. a C, or a C1, but I can depend on an 8200 being there. So I can I can either pull up a mix or I can get to where I need to very very quickly. Yes. So I start with the kicks. Um, I usually add kicks, and like yeah, you know, funny story about the Hermitude record. So like um, Gusto is a fantastic is a drummer and he's a fantastic drum programmer. Um, and I added kicks to that record, and I remember mm-hmm. talking to Adit from Horror Show, and mm-hmm. Adit's first response was like. You flew some kicks in. I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, yeah, I flew some kicks in because it just had to pop a little more. And like with, um, with Gusto stuff, there were there were a lot of stereo kicks or whatever. But I wanted a particular kick right in the middle. Like Mm -hmm. I had to be right in the center of the image again, so I had something that I could hang my hat on in the mix. Mm -hmm. So that's where Mm -hmm. I start. And then, um, with the with everything else kind of goes, falls into place after that. Um, mm. I tend to pan uh, either hard left, hard right or centre. I don't tend to muck around with the middle, the the, the with with the in-betweens. Mm-hmm. Um, it leaves me space for the reverbs. Uh, the reverbs and the effects can kind of take that middle space. Mm. But, um, yeah, that, that's that's pretty much it. And while I'm flying the kicks, I, I, I fly all the kicks in by hand. Mm. Um, so I'll 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 tab to transient and copy yep. them in, and Love as it. I'm as I'm doing all that, first of all, it makes it makes sure that my kicks are in time and in phase, mm-hmm. which is the most important thing in a record. Um, but also, it gives me a chance to just absorb everything else that's going on in the record, and we fill the gaps in from there. So that's pretty much it um, in terms of processing. And I think this is also a trap for young players. I tend to process as little as possible. Mm. Um, I think one of the things that people get into trouble with early on is over-processing, especially mm. because if you've got access to basically every compressor, in, in a software way, if you've got mm. access to every single compressor in the entire world, the trap is to put them all on. 
Yeah. Um, and that's fine if you're going for a particular thing, but every time you're adding like processing, you're playing with the phase. Mm. And if you if you're fine with that, if you want to play with the phase, knock yourself out. But mm. if you're trying to to maintain some integrity in the signal, you've got to be really, really careful on adding, on adding, on adding, on adding. So yep. yeah, that, that's how I start. And then um, the rest of it is pretty simple. Um, I try to, I try to, I pull the reference in and try to beat it. Mm. And that's, yeah, that's pretty much how I go about it. That's good. And I think what's important there is that the approach is um, more or less about having consistency and not necessarily thinking about, you know, I have to have the bass sitting in this place or I have to have the vocal because it's source dependent, but it's more the fact that you know um, that everything has its own space naturally, right? Like, you know, it sounds like that. Yeah, it does. But the the other thing about it is, is like I trust the meters. Like the metering is really, really important. Um, and so... Like on my on my master on my master bus, um, there's a couple of things going on. So on the, I, I like the PAS meters, and I, ta- I I need to make sure that the vet, like the super low. And this is the funny thing is, so if we talk about a Chris Brown record, or we talk about a June Rats record, we're talking about a um, a Daniel Johns record. Mm-hmm. I'm not that interested in anything below about 40 Hertz. Sure. So I, 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 I habitually, I shelve off 40 Hertz by one or two dB for a number of reasons. So if I'm making a club record in the club, all of that bottom end is going to be over accentuated anyway. Mm-hmm. So that takes care of that. If I'm making a radio record, the broadcast limiter is going to squash it anyway. So I mm. don't want it. I don't want any of that. Mm-hmm. I don't want anything over sort of 50 hertz. Mm-hmm. If I'm listening in um, earpods, or you know, if I'm listening in earbuds, AirPods, whatever, that's overhyped anyway. So mm-hmm. it, it it means that things can appear louder without having with less loudness and that's a really mm. important thing so that's when the engineering comes into it not just the production side because mm. if i can take care of minus 30 hertz i can push the fronts of the kicks harder mm. I'm, i can have a space um behind the vocal and that doesn't make any sense but but i can i can have a i can have a psychoacoustic space behind the vocal that that can pop in and um for me like for me, when a mix is working, it's like a diamond. So mm. the width, the width is the the stereo image in the diamond. The high and low is the is the like dynamics. Um, yep. Oh no, no, the the bass, the, the frequency stuff. Oh sure. And then and then the moving forwards is is the effects and the effects and the the space and whatever. So if mm. I can have a mix that's okay. moving like mm. this, I'm I'm winning. But to do that, Such a I great can't. Approach. Thank you. Um, I can't have too much stuff in the bottom end because if that's taking up all that energy, that means that I can't do any tricks. So, yeah, yeah that, that's the, like, there's positives and negatives with digital. The negative is, the positive is it's clean and we don't have noise. The negative is that once we get to zero, that's it. So mm. we need to try and maximise the perceived loudness without blowing things out and, mm. you know, and, and I mean, squashing things and just to get under it's, zero. It's so complex, but at the end of the day, it's efficiency, right? It's like efficiency of all of your processing. It's efficiency of the main levels and the dynamics and everything sitting together. Everything just sounds so efficient. And when you listen to the end product, like you said, it's crispy clear. Like it's just, it's all there. Everything sits in its own space. It's not, there's no, nothing's fighting. That's what I love about it. Nothing's fighting for attention. You're paying the attention where, like where you want it to, you know what I mean? Yeah, um, I do. And but the other thing about that is the compression and the compression ratios are important. So mm. I think that one of the things that so I there's two things that I bang on about the whole time. First one is phase. Phase mm. is so important and it's overlooked. Mm-hmm. The reason it's overlooked is because um like I'm unfortunately old enough to have to consider mono in mm. terms of broadcast. So if you don't get your phase right, all of a sudden you kick when it goes to AM radio, your kick drums disappear. We don't want that. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is compression is multiplicative. Mm. 
in terms of ratio. So if I've got a kick drum compressing at four to one and then it's doing some, then it's hitting a a subgroup and we've got another four to one and then the master bus compressor's doing two to one and then the L2 is doing fuck knows what the L2 is doing, <laughs> all, all of a sudden we've got 100, 200 to yep. one ratio on our compression. Now that's fine but it just needs to be, you need to be aware of it. And then it goes to broadcasts and the Optimod. So you get your record on Triple J. So at Ultimo, it hits another Optimod, which mm. squashes it. Then it goes to the transmitter and the Optimod at the transmitter, its whole job is to protect the transmitter. So all of a sudden you've got a 1,000 to 1, 5,000 to 1 mm. compression on your kick drums. Now, there's not a lot you can do about the broadcast limiting because it is what it is. Same with the streaming. It just is what it is. But not at least being aware of it, I mm. think, is a pitfall. And that's what, going back to what I said before, that's why I'm not looking to have 15 different mm. compressors on my kick drum. I prefer to layer them and get them right and make sure they're in phase so that my when the kick happens, the speakers go out, and when it doesn't happen, the speakers go in. That's important to me, and I think that helps with what I do. Yeah, and and having, you know, that sheen and that crystal clarity, it definitely, like what you said just then about, you know, the speakers responding and that sort of thing, like having space between all of the elements and stuff, that is what achieves that and it's it's huge and, and you're right, people just tend to kind of chuck things on and it all squashes together and you lose the clarity yeah. and you lose the ability to hear between instruments and all that sort of thing. So that's that's huge. Hey, thanks so much for listening so far. There is plenty more to come, so don't go anywhere. I just wanted to let you know that this podcast is made completely independently by myself with no sponsors. So if you like what you hear and you would like to show your support, you can send a donation to the PayPal link, paypal.me slash what's that sound. The link is also in the show notes. Thanks so much for your support and let's get back to it. Um, so one thing I want to kind of expand on a lot more because I think it would be really fascinating um, just to hear your story and, you know, I think the listeners will get a lot out of it is you're the first person I've had on this podcast that has made the move from Australia to the States and LA. You know, let's – I would love to know um, more about kind of that trajectory and, and, and things that you've learned from it as well. Um, so I came to LA basically – so one of the things I pride myself on in making records is that I'm ego-free, that mm -hmm. it's not about me, it's about the artist. And that's my that's you know, rule number one. Mm -hmm. Rule number two is the artist is not your friend, but that's a that's another conversation. But <laughs> so um but it's like for example, yeah, if I'm if I'm making a record with you, you get judged by this. No one cares who mixed it or recorded it or engineered it. No one cares. You know, maybe some some um, recording industry boffins or some A&R people, but even then no one really cares. Mm -hmm. That being said, the, the whole reason I came to LA was all ego, just, just to see if I could. If, see if I, could. Mm -hmm. um, I had a, a, an old friend who was here um, and he was, going, he was going pretty well um, and... I yeah yeah made the, made the jump. Mm -hmm. um, I got yeah like did I get lucky? I I think I got lucky. So um, when I got here, I was going around to rooms and trying to find trying to chase some work. And the the play was in those days. If you ring up and say I'm looking for work, sorry, itchy nose. If you ring up and say you're looking for work, you get you don't get in the door. Mm -hmm. So the play was to ring the studios and say, I'm an engineer and I'm you know, looking to book. All of a sudden you're a pr prospective client. So sure. I, I, I ran that all around town. And then you've got the minute from the, the minute from when you walk in to the minute that you walk out to pitch that, mm -hmm. you know, I'm around. So that mm -hmm. worked pretty well for a while. And I tried it on with, at, at the time there were, three or four women who were controlling all of the labour of recording studios in Los Angeles. There was mm. um, Candace Stewart who was running or runs East West. There was Paula Salvatore who's the studio manager at Capital and there was Rose Mancherny who was the, who was the studio manager at Record Plant. So I walked into Capital and got a meeting with Paula 
as a prospective client mm-hmm. and she picked me in about 10 seconds and just said, so you're looking for work? I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I'm looking for work. And she said, I've got nothing, but my friend Rose is looking at the moment. So I walked mm-hmm. out of Capital um, and sent Rose a message and and or called her and her response was, yeah, Paula just told me told me about you. Come now. So I don't so Paula knew a couple of records that I'd made, yeah. um, being involved in the Universal and EMI universe. But mm-hmm. there was no reason that Paula had any there was no reason for her to vouch for me whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So I got to Record Plant and and Jason Carson, who was the the tech and vice president there, um, yeah, walked me through and he said, you know, are you comfortable with the string session? And my response was, of course I am. There's fewer microphones than a drum kit. Mm-hmm. So that's how I got in at Record Plant. Mm-hmm. So they had a they had a kind of changing of the guard of their staff engineers when I got there of through one thing or another, there was a generation that was that was leaving sure. and the generation before, the, underneath that, I shouldn't say underneath that, the younger generation of that mm-hmm. wasn't quite experienced enough to deal with mm. some of their sessions mm-hmm, they were experienced mm-hmm. enough with most of them because the the thing with that time and this time as well is engineers in this city the 95 percent of what they do is one channel in two channels out we're recording vocals mm. over beats Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. what they were doing there. And that's fine for most of what they do. But all of a sudden, if you've got a string date mm-hmm. or you've got a band that needs to come in, or all, all of a sudden you need someone who has experience with dealing with that sort of stuff. So yeah. that's how I got my start. Mm-hmm. Um, in the first week I was there, I did a Mary J. Blige session with Ron Fair. Wow. Um, the whole, like the whole tamale, 60 piece orchestra, the whole Unreal. thing. Um and that was really important because that tran- that transitioned into a lot of work for me mm. um, because he could see that I wasn't somebody who just did one channel in, two channels out. I was also yep. head of the label, which was which was helpful, and uh, that's how I got the Nicole Scherzinger record, and that's how I got the Z record as well. So it was it was all it was all through that. But yes, the going back to signal flow and an understanding of how to make a record, I got. Yeah, I say lucky, but I got lucky that at that time there wasn't a whole lot of people who had the experience that I had with mm. big format recording. Mm. So yeah, that's 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 the start of my the start mm. of my LA journey. Also lucky with the visa as well. I just finished a master's program, which uh, which I did because I was doing some teaching, and you had to be going for a higher qualification than what you're assessing, and that let me get a J one visa, which led to other visas, and you know. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, and, yeah. And That's a huge I'm, part uh, of it, eh? Hey? And, and now, and now, now this is home. I've lived in Los Angeles pretty much longer than I've lived anywhere. So yeah, yeah for, for, for better or worse, I'm an Angelino. Yeah, well, there you go, there you go. And so, on that, obviously, you know, your own experience is your own experience, and no one else is going to live the same life as you. But obviously, with all of the experience that you have had, is there kind of key things that you could give as advice to anyone that wants to potentially try and follow the same route, whether that's do's or don'ts? Um, I think the big one is what sort of records do you want to be making? So if you want to be making pop records, if you want to be making hip-hop records, um, like it kind of is, unfortunately, it's here or nowhere. Mm. There, can be, there can be an argument made for Atlanta but like the scene in New York is um, nowhere what it was. Mm. Like for, and I make the same comparison about Melbourne and Sydney. Like, mm. um, I loved living in Sydney. I, I had a really good time when I was in Sydney. Um, but I'm a Melbourne boy. The, mm. So the comparison between mm. Melbourne and Sydney is an easy one to make between Los Angeles and New York. Whereas the record business is in Sydney. The culture mm. industry is in Melbourne. The yeah. record business here is in Los Angeles and the culture industry is in New York. So mm-hmm. if you want to be making, um, if you want to be making um, like pop records or you want to be making hip hop records and to be crystal clear, I didn't have any intention of making these records. It's just mm-hmm. where I landed. Mm-hmm. And once I landed there, my career has kind of gone down that path. Mm-hmm. But if, if you want to be making records with like, like pub rock type stuff. This is not mm. the place for you. If like mm. you know, be in Melbourne, like be mm. like 
Sydney, Sydney's weird, but you know, like being Sydney, um, mm, mm. like being Portland, like being London. There's mm, all these, yeah. there's all these places to be where there's a scene. But mm. if you want to be making pop records and you want to be <laughs> making hip hop records, it's kind of all done here. So yeah. you've got to be here. Yeah. In terms of in terms of getting here, there's 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 always a way um, if you want it bad enough. And like that's a this is a bit of a digression, but like a lot of people will ask. Yeah, my advice on getting involved in the business. And my first question is, are you sure? And I'm not being disrespectful with that. I'm actually being like completely genuine because this is a bastard of a way to make a living at times, mm. especially here where engineers get treated very poorly, mm. especially recording engineers, mix engineers, not so much. But if you're a recording engineer here, you can get treated really badly. The yeah. hours are terrible. You have to fight for every dollar. It's, it's a it's a complex thing. Mm. So you need to really want to do it because if you mm-hmm. don't really want to do it, there's easier ways to make X amount of money a year. Like mm-hmm. there's so much easier ways to make a living. That being said, like there's nothing more fun in the world than making a record. Yeah. And also being said, the opposite of that is just hitting record isn't making a record. So when you have input, <laughs> when you yeah. have input and... It's a collaborative experience. It's the best thing in the world. When you're sitting there just, you know, being a, like, Pro Tools monkey, that's not making a record. You're just hitting record. So, you know, it, it's a complex It's a complex thing. Absolutely. And I think the point that you make is if, you know, if you don't love it, if it's not something that you really, really, really want to do, you will constantly um, fight in your head the demons of this is really hard, I don't know if it's worth it. I'm tired. It, it's like you're just going to constantly run up against that if you don't purely love it and appreciate that the difficulties are all part of it, right? Yeah. And, like, I mm. joke about this, but, like, you know, I haven't had a good night's sleep since 1992. <laughs> and, like, I'm, I'm okay with that. I'm, mm. I'm completely at peace with it. Like, one of the funny things about, you know, I have a – my daughter's just turned four and people were talking about the challenges that come with having small children and whatever, especially the sleep deprivation. Mm. Like, I'm fine on no sleep. It's mm. not healthy and I know that it's going to take years off my life, but, you know, it, it is what it is. Mm. If it's, you've got to be sure, like there's one of the mm. things that I'm the most proud about at my time of record plant is there used to be, or there might be now as well, I've been, I'm kind of removed from it a little bit, but there was a thing where, because of the hierarchy, you have mm. the producer, you have the engineer, you have the engineer, sorry, you have the producer, you have the engineer, you have the assistant engineer, then you have mm. a runner underneath mm. that. Yep. So people would move up from being a runner to being an assistant engineer mm. and then all of a sudden they would shit on the runners. It's like, hang on a second, you were mm. a runner three months ago and yeah. they did that because that's how they were treated. So I raised mm. my voice. And people who know me very well will know that this is weird, but like I raised my voice in anger twice in my five or so years when I was on mm. staff there. And the first one, and this is something I believe in, you know, we succeed together and we fail together. Mm. So if you go if you go up and then all of a sudden you're ragging on a runner, that's not a vibe because that mm. person, first of all, is going to be in the room soon. And secondly, they might be make. They might be a producer really, really quickly. Like mm. there was a runner when I was there, um, Jinte Co. Jinte's making big records now mm. as a producer. So I'd like to, and I haven't worked with him on a professional level, but I'd like to think that if we ever did, I always treated him properly as mm-hmm. a when, when he was a runner. The other thing is there were a few people there who weren't sure that if they wanted to be there, and I feel really proud of having the conversation of. Are you sure you want to be here? Mm. Like, like maybe this isn't maybe this isn't for you. And some of those mm. people have gone on to have great success in other fields. And I feel proud to have at least been able to have that conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so, yeah, it's like having the <coughs> ability to and and like vision to to be like I can see something's off here, and it's okay. Like I think a lot of people struggle, especially in music and creative industries where they've built their whole life around this identity of like, I'm a creative, I love doing this. And then when they finally get to a place and it's not what they thought it was, it's really hard to confront. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Like 100%. Like the other lesson that I learned, so when I was studying cello at the VCA, the the head of the strings department was a guy called Philip Green. Philip and I didn't really get along. 
um, for for whatever reason, personality clash, I wasn't doing the work, whatever. Mm -hmm. But Philip said something that resonated with me then and still did, which is music isn't life, music's part of life. Mm -hmm. So I always get worried when people are like, you know, like with all due respect, the Australian Idol mentality of, oh, yeah, music is my oxygen. <laughs> Fucking, it's not. Like oxygen is your oxygen. Music, music, music is what we do for some of us, thankfully, what we do for a living. Music is a really, really important thing, but we can survive without it. Like we, we, can, we can survive and we can thrive without it. So like I'm, a, I'm an obsessive golfer. I mm. love playing golf. Mm-hmm. I make better records when I'm playing golf because it's a mo- it's a moment away from a screen. It's a moment that I'm not thinking about, you know, what's charting, what's working, what do I need to do today or whatever. And when mm. I come to work after I've after I've played golf pretty badly, I come with a clear head. I get to mix with perspective. Mm. That that's important to me. And it's I think because me and old mate didn't really get along. The fact that it resonated so hard is important. But mm. yeah, that was. Yeah, like I started studying there in like in 1994, and that that's something. And we haven't had any interaction for the better part of 20 odd years. Mm. Or is that how many years is that? No, it's more than that. Yeah, um, it's 30 years. But um, yeah, th- these little things, these little things stick. Yeah, yeah, 100. percent And I love it. And it's 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 really it's. I mean, it's obviously because of your years and and you know you see so many things that you're able to reflect upon those things that stood out to you and I've said this in other podcasts you might have just one sentence that you hear from someone like for me for example my drum teacher always harped on about timing and ear protection and those are two things that I've carried with me for all that time since I was 10 so it's like you just never know when those little things are going to stick out and yeah whether you like the person or not is irrelevant so yeah I love it yeah but Um, that's important as well like seriously kids protect mm, your ears like mm. it's like if, you know, if we've got another 15 hours to talk about this, so one, like I always, 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 always have earplugs within my reach, mm-hmm. especially doing hip hop sessions. Like in these big rooms, there's um, like the playback is with the, with the SSL at 11, like we're talking 120, mm. 130 dB peaks. Mm. Um, so I've got I've got 35 dB attenuators, mm. which I carry with me always. Um, and it's, Brutal. Like I was doing Polo de Don sessions, and we did like Nally and um, mm. Kerry Hilson or whatever. It's so loud that your eyes are vibrating inside your head. Yeah. It's louder than any gig you've ever been to. But yeah. there's no shame in hitting stop and protecting yourself. And if anyone has a problem with it, well, I'll just hit stop again. Like the look, the, the yeah. great thing about the great thing about being an engineer in a room is that you're the only one that can make the noise start and the noise stop. So yep. just hit just hit stop. Like no, nothing is worth it. And if there's people who are being abusive with that, maybe it's time to be working with somebody else. Mm. Yeah. It's mate, facts, absolute facts. <laughs> <laughs> this is um this has been so helpful and and just like great to to hear so many wonderful things from your experience and your perspective. And you've done some amazing work. So uh, once again, thank you. Um one thing I love to do before, uh, you know, we finish up the conversation is, and you've already given so many advi- so much advice, but if you have kind of, you know, some final um, key bits of advice, first of all, for producers and engineers, and then on the other side of that, the artists, because I, I'm, you know, a lot of artists will get a lot of uh, kind of great things out of these sorts of conversations as well. And I think artists just love to get nerdy as much as we do. So yeah, yeah if you have some well, of those. I, I, I don't know if my response is going to be overly nerdy. I think I think the, the big takeaways um, for me is on the relationship type stuff. So mm-hmm. I've got some, um, there's a, for, is this for the producers or the engineers or the artists? I'm not sure, but so. There's, there's a few things. And I mentioned Bernadette Fadul earlier. When mm-hmm. Berno and I were working together, we wouldn't start, we wouldn't commit to a project without a release date. Okay. Right? Because without a release date, this thing, and this goes back to being up, working in the box and this, that, and the other, mm-hmm. like record can go on forever. We can keep mm-hmm. changing things until um, the cows come home, not necessarily making them better or worse, but making them different. Mm-hmm. So... Mm-hmm. Um, the first, the big bit of advice for like the the producers, 
maybe this is, but definitely the the engineers mm. and especially the mix engineers, is that unless there's a release date, and this goes very much um, for um, for if you're doing label stuff as well. So if there's a release date, there's a marketing plan. If mm. there's a marketing plan, your record's going to come out. Mm. Um, so if a label comes to me and says, I want to mix this record, my very, very first question is, what is the release date? Mm. And then we work backwards from there. So my formula for mixing a record is give or take a song a day plus that again. Mm. Um, so an album, uh, uh, so with, we're t- saying like 15 songs is a month because yep. by the time, and I'm constantly mixing and revising at the same time. So sure, yeah. it's it's ab- about a month is how long it takes to to mix a label release, give or take. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And then we've also been doing um, the immersive stuff because we have an Atmos room and that's a whole mm-hmm. other conversation as well. So yeah, wow. from there we do that from the we do that from the stems. So that's about another day. So if you're looking for your stereo mixes plus the immersive mixes, it's give or take 40 to 45 days. Mm, yep. Now, now in the olden days, we need to have six week six week release t- um, lead time for the the pressing and the distribution and blah blah blah. Yeah. Not not so important now, but yes, um, it's there's still a process. It still takes some time to be aggregated and to be promoted. And so there's I know there's examples where of the opposite where you know Jay Z pops into a room um, at midnight and and cuts and it's on it's released at six o'clock in the morning yeah. that can happen that can happen but we're all not we're all not a jc yeah well so that's, that's the that, that's the first thing the other thing about it is and I, i'm gonna get this wrong but i think it was tommy emmanuel's theory that there's there's four reasons to do a record mm. if it doesn't fit one of these four i won't do it and if i'm being brutally honest if i need to check against the four things, I probably aren't going to, I'm probably mm. not going to do it. So is it adequately paid? Is it good for me personally? Is it good for my career or is it good for the community? Mm. Now it only needs to hit one, but if it doesn't hit any, I'm not doing it. Right. Yeah. That, that's, yep. that's, that's a big one. Mm-hmm. The other thing is like red flags. There's a few red flags for me. Um, the, the big red flag is, you know, like, where you know we're, we're one big family. We're not. I love my family, but one's enough. Um, yeah, we're, this is a this is a business. You know, that's the music business, not the music friends. And that this might sound cold, but I said it earlier. Where you know the artist is not your friend. Now, some of my dearest friends in the whole world. I don't know if you can see over my left shoulder. There's a there's a photo of of um, Joride and I. Like I love Joride. He's one of my dear friends, and we can be friends. But in terms of the artist, the artist is not your friend. It's mm. just too, it's too hard. So say I make a, I've just had, a, I've had good success making a record with Daniel, for example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I hope that, and yeah, and we've got a really, really fantastic relationship. Mm-hmm. I hope to make the next record, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I'm no guarantee to make the next record. Mm-hmm. So in, in the whole thing of, you know, the artist is your friend and we're buddies and this, that, and the other, that gets super hurtful when mm-hmm. they go and make a record with somebody else. And yep. like, if Daniel makes his next record with me, I would love that. I would, you know, mm-hmm. I would just about walk over broken glass to do it. Mm-hmm. But if he chooses somebody else, that's fine because that's just the way it is. So that's, that's the main one in terms mm-hmm. of the, in terms of the advice for the, for the artists is like, you know, engi- especially here, engineers, not the enemy. Like it's like we perform a crucial role in getting your vision out. And going back to what I said before about the ego thing is like, it's not about me. And this probably advice for the, the producers and the, and the engineers mm. is that like, you don't get judged by it. The artist gets judged by it. Mm. Nobody gives a fuck who mm. recorded it or mixed it or produced it. No one cares. Yeah. So the quicker that you can remove yourself from that and go, I'll do what the art not not what the artist wants, but I'll my job is to try and communicate their vision. That's you know, that's probably the big advice. And mm-hmm. with that as well, like I don't say no very often, but when it when I do say no, it's to the point of I don't agree with what you're saying, and this is why I don't agree with what you're saying. But if you want it, we'll do it anyway. Like, mm. and that's and that's what it comes down to because I don't get judged by this. Like, you know, there's there's going to be like your listeners, 
there's going to be a few people who go diving through album album notes. Um, there's going to be a few nerds who work in A and R. God bless their cotton socks, and yeah, that's that's who they're the people who know who I am, and I'm fine with that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, mate, thank you for saying yes to this podcast. Uh, it's my pleasure. <laughs> it's, it's, it's my it's, absolute pleasure. It's it's really been awesome, man, and th- and it's just so good to hear. Yeah, again, from someone who has you know put in so much hard work and and gotten to where you are now, and you've worked on some amazing records, and your stuff sounds fantastic. It's so oh, good to listen to. So yeah, you're very kind. Thank you. Thank you. Um, And thanks to everyone who has uh, been checking out this podcast. Um, We really appreciate it. Uh, If you could do us a favour and share it around on your socials, DMs, stories, in a conversation, uh, that is how we can get this spread out to as many people as possible. And hit follow or subscribe so you can stay up to date with every new episode that comes out with all of our fantastic guests such as Mitch. So, again, Mitch, thanks, mate. No worries at all. Happy 200th for the Bont. Go dogs. <laughs> awesome, man. Well, I appreciate it. And, yeah, thanks to everyone. And we will see you next time on What's That Sound Podcast. Thanks for listening to What's That Sound. Make sure you hit follow or subscribe on your podcast platform to stay up to date with each new episode. We'll catch you next time.